In March 2004, Mel Gibson released On the World, a movie that really shook up people's understanding of respectable religion. The Passion of the Christ spoke box office records in so many ways. And so great was the response to this film that Time magazine published a cover story under the heading, Why Did Jesus Have to Die? The question was a fair one. It reflected an honest understanding of the puzzlement many people felt when they watched this no-holds-barred depiction of the Christian story. Some people felt curious. Some people felt revulsion. Some people felt the, grow, the beginnings of a newfound faith. And just think for a moment about the rich history of German Christianity. This country was first evangelized before it was a country in the 3rd century AD. But by the 16th century, German Christianity had a truly world influence. From the time Martin Luther nailed his famous theses to the castle door in Wittenberg in 1517, he didn't just start a social renewal or spiritual renewal, he started a, a total reformation in the way societies functioned. And we still enjoy the benefits now. A century later, the Pietists came along. This was a group within the Reformation Church designed to reform the Reformed Church. The Pietists taught that the most important thing for a Christian is to have a personal relationship with Christ. We still believe that today. Inspired by these Pietists, a man called Ludwig von Zinzendorf, a nobleman from Saxony, promoted a Christianity that had very little ties to the state. He launched a prayer movement to inspire world missions that lasted continuously 24 hours a day for 100 years. In the 20th century, Germany gave the world one of its most courageous theologians. Many of you know of him, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, whose stand against Hitler led to his execution. And yet his courageous writings, his example of faith under fire still influence people the world over today. 20th century also gave the world a friend of mine whom I believe to be the second greatest 20th century evangelist after Billy Graham. His name is Reinhard Bonke. In a decades-long ministry, mainly in Africa, he has led more than 74 million people to faith in Christ in Africa alone. And given all that rich history of German Christianity, German teaching, Christian activism, Christian leadership, Christians in science, Christians in entertainment, Christians in sport, Christians in media, you would think that German people need no reminders about the essential tenets of Christian faith. And yet here we are today in the age of globalization and robotization and digitization, and we're still asking the same question, why did Jesus have to die? What's that all about? You see, our world would be pretty much unrecognizable to the apostles of the first century and the, the church fathers of the early church. We have mobility, we have technology, we have education they could not even have imagined. And yet in one very important respect, my friends, our world would be instantly recognizable to Paul. You see, contrary to what some people are telling us today, we do not live in a post-Christian world. 
We live in a pre-Christian world again. And I want to talk to you this morning about how to take faith to a pre-faith age. How do we take our faith, our values, what we believe to be true, how do we share our faith with people who don't share our assumptions about the Bible, about morality, about almost anything? By the way, being in a pre-faith age is not bad news for the church. If you think about it, we did pretty well the first time we encountered a pre-faith age. Just read the Acts of the Apostles. But I believe the church is built for influence. I believe the church was birthed for influence. I believe that you and I as Christians are called to influence. We're called to change our world more than it changes us. In Jeremiah 29, 7, the Bible says, Seek the peace and prosperity of the city into which I have sent you as exiles and pray on behalf of your city, it says, for in seeking its welfare, you will find your welfare. Do you know God intends the city of Berlin? I love Berlin. Since I first came here many years ago, I have loved Berlin. God intends your city to be blessed because of, not in spite of the fact that you are in it. In Romans chapter 12, verse 2, we read this, Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you live out the good, acceptable, and perfect will of God. This was not written to an individual. Sometimes when we read the Scriptures, we think we're meant to read them as they're just talking to me. Well, they are, but they're also written to groups of people. The book of Romans was written to a collection of churches in the capital city of the Roman Empire. And Paul was saying to them as a group, don't be conformed to the culture of Rome. Be transformed because your mind is renewed so that you live out the good, acceptable and perfect will of God or the God kind of culture. What is culture? It's a collective expression of what is good and acceptable here. When I get on the plane tomorrow and go back to where we live in the UK, there are certain things that are good and acceptable there which are not good and acceptable here. So when he talks about the good, acceptable, perfect will of God, he's talking about a culture that God approves of. And if we're going to bring faith to a pre-faith age in your workspace, in your daily life, in your Monday to Saturday, we're going to need some changes in the way we think. I'll share a couple this morning. I'll share some more tonight. Don't think I'm going to share exactly the same thing tonight. I'm not, but it's the same message, just in two parts. There's actually 10 parts, and I'll get to give you two. For the rest, you have to watch the movie or read the book. The first thing we need is a different understanding of the headship of Christ. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 22 the Bible so wonderfully says that God has made Christ the head of all things. Many Christians believe and many people in secular society agree that Jesus is just the head of Christianity or religion. No, Jesus, as far as God is concerned, is the head of all things. Why did we do lift yesterday? Why did we do it last year? Because we believe, Mark believes, I believe, you believe that Christ is the head of business too. 
He's the head of media too. He's the head of education too. He's the head of law and politics and sport and entertainment and the arts and technology. And I could go on and on and on. He's the head of all things. Every sphere of influence in heaven and in earth, Christ has been made head of that thing. It's just that most of us don't see it yet. Tom Wright, a bishop in the Church of England, has written, When Jesus came to earth in the incarnation, the king had come to reclaim and redeem an earthly realm that was his by right. In Matthew 28, 18, Jesus said, All authority in heaven and in earth is given to me. Therefore, in light of that, because of that fact, go and make disciples of all nations. Can I just say to you today with respect that Hillsong Church and other churches do not go into the world to make disciples because we have cool music or because we have different styles of preaching and we use media in clever ways and we're nice people. Welcome home. We're nice people. We go to make disciples in the authority of His name and it's only the delegated authority of Jesus that wins people to Christ. When we become Christians, we don't make him head of all things. We simply recognize him. If you're the head of all things, I want you to be head of my life too. If that's the way the world is going towards the headship of Jesus, where he is crowned the Lord of all, and one day people have to bow to his name and say, you are Lord, I want to get there early. I want a front row seat. You know, there's one cure for the fear of man, and that is the authority of Christ. When you fully understand that Christ is the head of all things, not just Sundays. He's the head of business. He's the head of management. He's the head of retail. He's the head of whatever you do in whatever sector. When you realise that, you become less afraid of people and what they might do to you. This acknowledgement that Jesus' headship is not confined to the church was a key feature of early Christianity. It's the thing that brought them into tension with Rome. You see, they tried under Roman rule to do what Paul said and live at peace with all men. But there was a line they would not cross. They would render to Caesar only what was Caesar's. And that did not include the undivided obedience or unquestioning loyalty because that belonged to Jesus, the head of all things. One of the reasons that Dietrich Bonhoeffer stood against the Nazis was that he knew they were doing something horrible to the Jews. Mind you, he wasn't the only German who made that sort of a stand. He was hanged two weeks before the liberation of Berlin and the guard who witnessed his death said, I have never seen a man so at peace with his God. He lived as if there was a line he could not cross. That some things he owed only to Christ because Christ is the head of all things. The same verse in Ephesians 1.22 goes on to say, not only is he the head of all things, he's been given as head over all things to the church. I believe that means that God has intended the church to have the privilege of expressing the headship of Christ in all of those spheres of influence. You don't have a job on Monday just to make money to bring to church on Sunday. 
That's not what God gave it to you for. He gave you a job so that you could express the headship of Christ where I can't. Where your pastor can't. That's why you're in that position. That's why the Lord, you may say, well, I don't even like my job very much. Well, put that in God's hands and let him take care of it. The Bible says the steps of a good person are directed by the Lord and he delights in his way. God will lead you if you're just diligent in what you're doing now. He'll steer you if you just move forward where you are now. In 1982, the pastor of a church in Leipzig began organising prayers for peace. Christians would meet every Monday. Often just 10 or 12 people would come together. They were passionate, though, about seeing an end to the division that the Berlin Wall had brought to their city. The meetings continued despite the pressure from the East German government. The pastor erected a sign outside the church. It said, open to all. Welcome home. Young people, Christians, even atheists, started to take refuge in the church and attendances grew quickly. On May the 8th, 1989, the authorities barricaded the streets leading to the church. They beat some people who tried to get in the doors and yet the congregation continued to grow. On October 9, 1989, the government announced that this counter-revolution, as they called it, would be put down by force if necessary. And there was a feeling of, of great danger in the air. And yet 8,000 people filled St. Nicholas Church in Leipzig, including members of the Stasi. At the same time, 70,000 people gathered in other churches across that city. The following Monday, 120,000 people took to the streets in protest against the government. Eric Honecker resigned two days later. And October 23, my birthday, 300,000 people took part in protests in that city. On November 9, the wall came down and the ways were filled around the world. I have a question for you. Could it be that one group of 10 or 12 Christians in a little city no one then had heard of called Leipzig actually believed that Christ is the head of all things. And because they believed that, they changed the course of human history. Is that even possible? Do you believe that is possible? I believe it is perfectly plausible when you consider that there were millions of other Christians around the world praying for the same thing at the same time. Someone just has to believe that Christ is the head of all things. Everything starts from there. You can sing all you want. You can preach all you want. But until we believe and act as if Christ is the head of what I do on a Monday, we won't change a nation. We can sing about it. We need to do it. We need to live like Christ is the head of all things. One of the greatest evangelists of the last century, I mentioned Reinhard Bonnke. When he first went to Africa, he says, I was so afraid to pray for the sick. I was surrounded by sick and dying people and my compassion was with them. I was moved as Jesus was with compassion for the sick, but I felt if I pray and nothing happens, people will turn away from me. And one day the Lord said to him, my word, Reinhardt, is as powerful in your mouth as it is in mine. And from that moment on, Bonke began to pray for the sick with great faith and saw hundreds and hundreds of people getting healed even before they believed in Christ. You see, he stood and believed in his right 
to operate in the delegated authority of Christ who is the head of all things. Expressing the headship of Christ is not something just for the spiritual aspects of life. And understanding that brings the inspiration, the exhilaration, the joy, the release that you feel on Sunday into your Monday. Not long ago, I was sitting in London having coffee with a scriptwriter. She has been an actress, director, and writer for many, many years. She's a very committed Christian member of her church. I said, what are you doing now? She said, well, actually, for the last few months, I've been writing a screenplay for a TV series. I said, what's it about? She said, it's about a man who had great influence in the black music scene in the 50s and 60s in America. She said, I knew him personally, and I feel his story needs and deserves to be told. But Mel, I'm disturbed. I said, why? She said, well, I'm a Christian, as you know, and I love the Lord, and this was not a nice man. He did a lot of terrible things. Do you think this is even the sort of story a Christian should be telling? And I said, well, let's rephrase the question. How might you tell the story in a way that a non-Christian could not? What lessons might you be able to draw from this story so that without hitting people over the head with the Bible, you can suggest there's a better way than this? What lessons of life might you be able to portray in an entertaining way, in a way that a non-Christian couldn't? And suddenly, I'll never forget, she broke into this huge grin. She's a black lady, so this grin was really bright. I love it when dark-skinned people smile. I mean, it really turns the world on for me. And she just grinned from ear to ear, and she said, that changes everything, doesn't it? You see, suddenly she had just a little glimpse that Christ is the head of the dramatic arts. It changes your Monday. And if you know that Christ is the head of all things, you recognize there are parts of secular life that are potentially honoring to God. And you said about redeeming those things and appropriating and recreating those things. In Revelation 4, 11, the scripture says, For you, Lord, created all things, and by your will, for your pleasure, they were created. Do you know that God will eventually take everything people do on planet Earth that in any way reflects his good nature and character and turn it into something that brings him honor and pleasure? I believe there are people in Germany today who say they don't want to know the Lord, or maybe they've never really heard about him properly, but they say they don't really want to know him, and yet they're using their God-given skills and abilities to create wonderful things. I believe that one day the Lord will take what they've created and use it to bring him honor, even if they themselves, sadly, are lost. What are the key things that make your city great? We need to redeem those things. It's not time to criticize the city. There's a lot to criticize. We need to find the things that have made this city great and memorable. What about in your sector of the workspace? What are the things that have, that have made your sector so effective in Germany? Why is your sector effective? Find those things. Redeem them. Claim them. Say, Lord, I'm, I'm going to do my best 
to extend that thing and grow that thing. I'm going to pour energy into that. Sometimes we spend so much time saying, what's your will, Lord? And the Lord just says, do something. Just move. Just have a go. Just come on, find one thing, try it out. And what if you fail? Well, you won't do it again. You'll go and do something else. Chances are you will succeed. In Acts 17, this is very important. In Acts 17, 26, Bible says, For from one man God made every nation. The word there is ethnos, which means tribe or people or race or nation. That they should inhabit the whole earth. In another translation says, He has arranged the seasons of opportunity for every nation. God has seasons of opportunity for Berlin. This is one of them. We need to grab it with both hands. We need to find out where God has blessed this city in the past. You see, those areas where Berlin is good are not just areas of productivity and creativity by human beings. They are areas in which God has poured His rain on the just and the unjust. And we need to reclaim them as such and say, this is evidence that Christ is the head of all. Let me redeem this. Jonah was surprised, stunned to find that God had a plan for a city that he didn't even like. You might say, I don't much like Berlin. I wish I didn't live here. Well, you're a bit like Jonah. Don't run from the call. You know what happened to him. He was surprised God had set or arranged a season of opportunity for Nineveh. Nehemiah risked his life rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem because he was convinced God had a purpose and had arranged the opportunities for his city. Jesus, just hours before he died, stood on the Mount of Olives, looked across the Kidron Valley at Jerusalem and wept. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often I would have taken you under my arms like a hen takes her chicks under its wings and you would not have it. God has a purpose for Berlin. He has arranged seasons of opportunity for Berlin. Do you believe that Christ is the head of all things in this city? Will you redeem what is potentially good in your city? The other thing we need if we're to bring faith to a pre-faith age is a new understanding of worldview. Now, when I say worldview, I don't mean your view of the world. A worldview is a construct. It's a filter through which you sift everything that happens to you and try to make sense of a confusing world. It's a story, if you like, an inbuilt story that you tell yourself that makes sense of things. Everybody has a worldview. Even people who don't seem to be thinking anything are thinking something, and they're living it out. Did you ever meet somebody and think, why on earth did they do that? What were they thinking? How many parents are here? Did you ever look at your kids and say that? What were you thinking? I think that when I go to airports. Why did they call this building a terminal? Why choose a word that in English normally means ending in death? For a building where people gather before entrusting their lives without a parachute to a tube of metal at 30,000 feet that is flown mainly by robots. 
What were they thinking? Everybody thinks something. Everybody has a worldview. Christianity isn't just a bunch of scriptures to make a Christian feel good on a dark day. It's an entire story of why things are the way they are. For my money, it's the only story that actually aligns with the honest truth we see around us and gives us hope. It's important that we understand Christianity is a worldview because you can't change your behavior unless you change your worldview. You can't change a nation's culture or city's culture unless you change the worldview on which it's based. The battle of our time is the battle of worldviews, my friends. I spend a lot of time in the media talking about issues. They ask me, what's your view of this issue or that issue? And I talk about it. But it all comes out of Christian worldview. Even though I'm not preaching, the worldview is still there. The battle of our time is not the battle of what do you think about global warming? What do you think about gender identification? What do you think about this? That's not the real battle. The battle is what joins those dots. The worldview. In Daniel chapter 5, everybody could read the writing on the wall. They knew what the words meant, but they didn't make any sense put together. This doesn't make a sentence. What does it mean? Daniel comes along with his prophetic revelation and says, well, I'll tell you what the words mean. You know this, but let me tell you what they mean put together. And he tells the king what's going to happen to his kingdom. That's the role the church in society not just to talk about the issues but to join them together and say now when you see this whole thing through the Christian worldview you begin to understand this is where we're going and this is what we should do about it we need to equip ourselves for that role my friends sometimes we're training ourselves in the how-tos of Christianity but not the whys of Christianity and you know you can do the how-tos but if you don't understand the whys the how-tos are difficult so what do you mean Marriage. We tell people, we tell ourselves how to build a good marriage. We learn how to build a good marriage. Nothing wrong with that. It's important. The Bible says a lot about it. But the Bible says even more about why marriage is important. Is it just because we, we want to have children and they need a home? No, that's not the fundamental reason for marriage in, in the Bible. Is it because we need a friend and a companion through life? That's true. But it's not the fundamental primary reason for marriage in the Bible. The primary reason is this. Human gender reveals two different but mutually complementary aspects of God's nature. Gender difference is not just physical. The two genders represent two different but complementary revelations of who God is. And by creating us male and female, God deliberately separated different aspects of his reflection in us so that we would naturally need, cling to and nourish one another in relationship. When a male and female come together in marriage, they form a union with the potential to present a much more complete revelation of who God is than they had when they were on their own. It's a revelation for themselves, a revelation for their children, a revelation for their neighbours. Now, I'm not saying single people don't reveal God. Jesus said being single is a high calling. He was single. Paul said, I wish all men were like me. Single. That's what he said. Why? Because he said when you're single, you don't have to think about the needs of your partner. You can devote yourself completely to what God wants you to do. 
It's a high calling to be single. Never look down on single people. Never look down on single people. God looks up to them. But marriage is not just about companionship and it's not just about having children. It's certainly not about getting a mortgage. Marriage is about people coming together to reveal who God is by bringing together different parts of his nature. Consider the question of sexuality today in the world we live in. Sexual orthodoxy says the body is separate from the true self. You and your body are two different things. And so you can do with your body as you please. It's a tool. It's something to be utilised. It can give you pleasure. You can give your body to someone else for their pleasure if you want. Because whatever you do with your body doesn't affect your true self. This is not a biblical worldview. When God made you body, soul, mind and spirit, he made you one being. Not four in one, one. When the Bible says don't be ruled by the flesh, it's not talking about your physical flesh. It's talking about the desires of the lower nature without Christ. That's what it, don't ever think it's talking about the body itself. God gave you that body. And when Jesus comes back, he, the firstborn among many brothers and sisters in the resurrection, is going to resurrect your body too. And you will have a body, albeit a greatly changed and altered body. It's like putting a Corvette engine in a Volkswagen. That's what it's going to be like when I get to be with Jesus and I get a new body. This old mortal, Paul says, will be done away. It will, it will go. And God will give me an immortal body like the one Jesus has. And if you think about it, this dualism of body and, 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 and inner, inner self, it's behind all sorts of issues today. Sexual immorality, um, uh, I would argue, assisted dying in most cases, abortion on demand in most cases, all based on the same idea that my body is separate from the real me. When you apply the Christian worldview, it changes the way you see things. It liberates the way you see things. And I finish with this. Our worldview is based in revelation. It comes from revelation. And we need to have a constantly growing worldview if we're going to really help people living in a pre-faith age. Because the issues are always changing. People have different needs now than they had 20 years ago. Oh, I know people are fundamentally the same. But the presenting needs are different. So our worldview needs to keep expanding. So that we understand God's nature better and how it applies to these questions and these needs. How do you grow your worldview? Three quick things. Study your Bible. In John chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him. And without Him was nothing made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. But to as many as received him, to them he gave the power to become the sons and daughters of the living God. In the beginning was the Word. Why is Jesus called the Word? Because Jesus is the sum total of everything God ever wants to say to you. Everything you ever needed to know about God is said through Jesus. When you read the Bible, always look for a living manifestation of the living word through the written word. 
Look for Jesus. He's there even in the Old Testament. When you read the Bible, look for conditions as well as promises. Focus on your responsibilities, not just your rights as a Christian. Look for the bigger context beyond yourself. He's not just talking to me. He's talking to the Corinthians in the book of Corinthians. What did they understand he was saying? That will help me understand what I'm meant to see. Otherwise, we, we put it in our modern culture and we think, well, it means this. It doesn't mean that at all. Want to keep growing your worldview? Get some mentors from a distance. I know some Christians, they say, I've never had a mentor. Where have all the fathers gone? I didn't have a mentor either when I was growing up. We didn't even know what the word meant then. I'm so old. But I found a bookstore. It's like a great big meeting room filled with potential mentors. Some of my greatest mentors I never met. Some of them were dead before I was born. Your brain takes up 2% of your body weight but uses 20% of your body's energy. You need to be careful how you use that energy. Reading is interior decorating for the brain. Make sure you decorate it well. Find some mentors, even from a distance. And finally, we keep growing your worldview. Walk a mile in someone else's shoes. Nothing stretches your understanding of God like serving someone else. Martin Luther King Jr., said a human being hasn't begun to live unless he or she has looked beyond their own narrow concerns and seen the broader concerns of humanity. He said, life's most urgent and persistent question is this, what am I doing for other people?